The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You may have noticed the title somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and uh, Mark was already playing with that. And also uh, meant to be a little provocative, at least towards certain attitudes. Different people bring different attitudes to meditation. Although when I speak of practice, I don't limit it to meditation, but the broader sense of path as understood in Buddhism. So there's ethical practice, there's the study and intellectual practice. Service is an aspect of practice, and so on. But often in places like this, uh, meditations at the center and that's often where folks struggle especially if burdened by certain attitudes which I'll try to touch on later one of the forms that questions can take, whether it's in weekly meditation groups or on retreat, has to do with a certain complaint about something being hard. Uh, it's, it may not always be intended that way, but it seems to me it can often come out that way. Some questions imply a judgment, whether this is recognized or not, that something's hard. And the implication is it shouldn't be. I'm an American, after all. I should be born with a silver spoon or platinum, whatever the latest card is. Or sometimes there's a tone of lament, even self-pity. It's hard. Partway through a meditation retreat and not quite going the way we hoped, expected, or fantasized, get frustrated, keep falling asleep, maybe to avoid the frustration. And get these kind of questions that deep down seem to express a complaint or lament about it being hard. 
there's a interesting piece of the Pali language that has uh, I've found useful over the years. In the word dukkha, often translated suffering, but can also mean pain and related things. The prefix du, 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 can mean hard, difficult. And it has a counterpart, su, su. And that shows up in the common word for happiness, joy, pleasure, sukha. Uh, one has two Ks, the other has only one K when transliterated into our alphabet, which means the in India one has two consonants between the U and the uh the other has a single consonant. But they're often explained as one etymology of dukkha is hard to bear. Sukha is easy to bear. Su can mean easy, beautiful, pleasant. And then do can be hard, painful. And since dukkha has a prominent role in Buddhist teaching, although there's a certain current here in America that prefers to avoid that and make it all about happiness, which isn't quite the way the Buddha approached it, though happiness is in there. But the Buddha's teaching uh, really worked around dukkha and freedom from dukkha. I bring this up, this little bit of etymology between difficult, easy, hard and pleasant, painful, nice, pleasant, because that's often territory our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes can bounce around in or ping-pong back and forth, especially if we're looking for pleasure, whether whatever we call it. But if deep down we're looking for pleasure and wanting things to be kind of easy, we tend to be disappointed at least some of the time. And we may not uh, have much tolerance for that. And then we're back in Dukkha, and the laments, the complaints. 
if somebody went to the Buddha with such complaints, and to be honest, I can't remember somebody going to the Buddha and complaining, this is hard. But there, there were other forms of complaint. And the Buddha's response, well, I didn't promise you what you're looking for. But that didn't, um, that didn't stop certain pig-headed monks and nuns, although most of the stories are about monks, uh, at least because of patriarchy, but maybe they were more pig-headed than the nuns. I don't know. And, well, the Buddha did make such promises like it's going to be easy. But what happens if we kind of grew up with the weird dynamic of a culture that on one hand kind of stresses us, stresses us out, to kind of keep us on the middle class, middle class tread, tread wheel, but dangles the carrot of easy, happy, happy, and all that. I'd like to contrast this with a couple uh, pieces from Southeast Asia, first from Thai Buddhism, where I learned about Buddhism and got most of my foundation training and still am a regular visitor. An important element in Thai Buddhism is the theme of natural. This shows up in many ways. For example, this is especially true in forest monasteries where part of living in the forest is to be intimate with nature. Over there, it's semi-tropical Southeast Asian forest, somewhat different than these parts, or down in Wisconsin, where I live. But still, we can do our upper Midwest version of being out in nature being in touch with the elements, whether they're hot or cold, dry or wet, whatever cycles, the ecosystems, the plants, the critters are going through. To take nature as a teaching that's going on all the time, if we're paying attention, able to listen and see. 
Another aspect that the uh, theme of nature and natural shows up is an emphasis on doing things in a natural way, including meditation. This is something I've found as a good antidote for, for example, my competitiveness. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I accumulated a strong competitiveness in my life, which doesn't do any good or much good. I'm sure it might do some incidental good, but it tends to mess with meditation and stir up a lot of ego and other other crud. Hanging out with nature, even when certain things are eating other things, there's also uh, noticing how things accommodate each other, like trees, different tree species, vines, ants and other insects, birds, primates, except for the humans were not as good at it as most of the ecosystem. But if we learn to tune in more and more, we can start to find ways to do things more naturally instead of always feeling we need to hurry up or apply pressure, you know, get things done, move them along, be in control or under control. This is, I found, especially helpful as my meditation practice is based in breathing. And breathing is very sensitive to some of the things I just mentioned. Trees, as far as I can tell, and I don't necessarily speak tree, or oak, or cedar, or whatever. But also, uh, our cats, our horses, the squirrels, I, I don't speak those languages, but they don't seem to make our complaints about things being hard, difficult, they kind of do what they got to do to survive. And that, that's been an ongoing lesson for me that I, I connect back to what I'm saying now about natural, that this 
hard, easy, painful, pleasant framework that we can get caught up in really doesn't serve us. And what's a more important question is, what's important? What's the responsibility to get on with? And for those of us who see spiritual practice, spiritual life, as a fundamental responsibility, who see ethical practice as a fundamental responsibility, service, as well as meditation, then why not just cut through the, um, the dithering around with complaints and the like? And just get on with it. It seems to me easier if we're not hoping for it to be easy and we rather attune ourselves with the natural processes. Which doesn't mean there's a promise that will make it easy. It's not like I'm trying to sell you some silver bullet magic trick. But it's not nearly as hard when we no longer worry about it being hard. I also thought to mention the Burmese monk Utejaniya. I get, uh, I forget what Doug, he's sitting over there, calls them the daily Tejaniya. And I saw them on the last newsletter from Common Ground. There was a bunch of them last year about effort. And for the most part, Utejaniya was talking about a much different concept of effort than we were raised with, or that I, I can speak for myself. It's maybe rude of me to assume that as fellow Midwesterners, those who grew up here had similar. But I'm assuming a certain shared American culture that uh, we imbibed. I'm not prepared to quote from Utejaniya but I, I very much appreciate a style that to me is very much in harmony with Thai forest Buddhism such as I experienced at Suan Monk. I think this is important 
for numerous reasons such as when we look into Buddhist teachings, we find words like effort or sometimes translations like striving. They appear quite a bit. There's even a place where Buddha's reported to have said, this is a teaching of virya, virya vada. Vada means words, teachings, although some translate it as doctrine, which strikes me as overdone and heavy-handed. So I would rather say a teaching of virya, Variance often translated energy and a different word is translated effort, but they overlap a lot and etymologically virias related to the word for hero. And so there's a connection with being dauntless and courageous. So as with many Pali words, there's a cluster of meaning that's hard to capture with any one English term. But if you dig into these teachings, you'll find these themes of putting forth energy, making effort, being disciplined, and having determination and commitment. Throw in some courage, stick to itiveness, perseverance, and you start to get the picture. So, what kind of effort, stick to itiveness, encourages Buddha encouraging? Is it uh, something pushy? something uptight and stressed out, something where we get frustrated and give up, I'm willing to bet no way. And so one reason for tonight's title is to challenge us to rethink the baggage we bring to Buddhist meditation practice. I've, I don't know if you hear it as much, but I used to get really annoyed American teachers who would sort of say, let's get rid of the Asian cultural baggage. But they never talked about getting rid of the American baggage, which causes us more trouble. <laughs> if the Asian so-called cultural baggage is causing us trouble, we're really confused. <laughs> uh, I'm more interested in keeping a lookout and being mindful of in our case, uh, upper Midwest, Germanic, Scandinavian, I have German and Swedish ancestors, plus a little bit of Welsh. Uh, of 
course, all that got sort of whitewashed here in um, North America. But what, what assumptions about things like effort, easy, hard, do we bring to our practice? I think these are valuable questions. So I'd like to um, take a little bit to ask, what makes practice hard? I've already touched on a few of things, a few things, and I'll be speaking somewhat in generalities, and I apologize if some of them don't fit you very well. But these are things that I've seen in myself and many others. And to be honest, uh, I've noticed them in Thailand as well. It's not like any cultural characteristics belong to one culture exclusively, though they might be stronger in one place, weaker somewhere else, just as with within individuals. So what are some of the things that can make practice hard? And as I toss out some possibilities, you might want to be active asking, what has made your practice hard? And please don't think it's the weather, the government, your chair, or the person next to you. We could speak of ambition. Many of us, I was, raised, were, was raised to be somewhat ambitious, to dream, get ahead, all that. In my family, there was no question that I'd be going to college. I didn't realize till I was graduating from high school that that wasn't the case for, for a lot of people. What are the consequences of ambition when it comes into our meditation practice? Perhaps we're always setting our sights ahead to something bigger, something better, something more advanced. Now, of course, many of us are pretty smart, and we've heard some of the usual warnings, and so we deny that we're doing any such thing. <laughs> So I've learned if I'm denying something, there's a good chance I'm doing it. 
That has to do with things like patriarchy, but it also shows up in meditation. So Now, I know not everybody was raised to be ambitious. Sometimes it goes the other way. Some people were uh, raised or abused at home, at school, in a different way and told, came up, developed a belief of not being good enough. Some of us then turn that into ambition. Some of us more directly inhibit ourselves with, I'm not good enough, I can't do it, and so on. So it could be the flip side of ambition. Both can make practice hard. Because like everything else I'll be mentioning, it's beside the point. They're distractions. And worse, they're distractions that lead us astray. How can you be mindful, really mindful, if you're looking ahead, trying to get somewhere else, and so on? Things like this can bring on a kind of effort that's pushy. I've felt that, for example, in my throat or my face, if I'm pushing in meditation, I end up pushing the breath. And I've experienced that as pressure around the nose. At first, I thought that was great. It was easier to feel my nose. I have some mild allergies, sinus issues. I don't always feel the breath in my nose so well. So Yeah, add a little artificial pressure. Oh, there, I can feel it. Yay, I can meditate now. (laughs) And maybe for a while that's fine. But then at some point, it's not really helpful and it's not in balance. That's just one way pushing is shown up. It's shown up in leaning forward in uh, my posture. I'm going to digress briefly. At at Suan Mok one year, we had a big problem of the dogs biting people. There were a lot of dogs in the monastery because they were fed better than in the village. And the the dogs had kind of packs. But quickly it was noticed the dogs only bit foreigners. (laughs) Are they racist dogs? (laughs) And then mainly foreign men. 
So there's sexist dogs, too. <laughs> but then one day, I was watching a gentleman, you know, in flip-flops, shorts, T-shirt, clearly not a tie. And he turned out, this guy turned out to be German. I saw him walking towards where the foreigners ate. And I swear the guy was at close to a 45-degree angle. I'm exaggerating somewhat. But the whole body energy was just... And it looked like the head was just moving forward and dragging the body along. (laughs) And the arms are kind of... I don't know why this poor man was in such a hurry... He was only a minute away from the food, and there were always big pots. And it was cooked three hours ago, so it's not like it's going to get any colder. (laughs) But so I'm guessing it was habit. And he wasn't the first person. And so we noticed that because the dogs didn't bite me because I'd got used to walking more like a tie. Just kind of relax and bounce along. <laughs> I mean, there are times I hurried too, but the dogs knew me so they didn't bite me. So we started giving lessons. That was my job. Sort of explain, just walk slow. Don't be in a hurry to get anywhere and you won't scare the dogs. And the problem went away. I'm slightly exaggerating, but there's uh, the basic story is true. So those are some of the things that kind of moving forward, pushing, striving, trying to get somewhere. Another thing that's made practice hard for me is control. Controlling breath, controlling emotions, trying to control my mind. That one was tough because a lot of Thai teachers, including my own, use that word a lot. And I now sometimes go back to try to look more carefully at what Ajahn Buddhadasa meant. And I've been experimenting with different ways to translate certain Thai words. But I interpreted them to a kind of control that's a little bit tense and tight, or sometimes a lot, a bit forceful, being on top of things, managing them, the kind of I'm in charge attitude. And although he used a word or a couple words that could mean control, his understanding is the way you 
control is by being in harmony with the natural processes. So it's more of a harmonizing with rather than an imposition kind of control. Another thing that can make practice hard, it seems to me, is craving. I've already mentioned wanting to get somewhere. Well, wanting to get somewhere generally means not being satisfied with where one is. That's craving. There's here now, and there's somewhere else. Somewhere else can be a better mind, a better personality, especially if we're afflicted with some version of I'm not good enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm whatever, not enough. So we want to get to where it's enough or better. That's craving. Even if we try to argue, but that's good craving, right? Maybe. It's better than wanting to make a lot of money uh, ripping people off or telling lies or doing bodily harm, exploiting, and so on. But if we're already talking about spiritual practice, we can not be so concerned with those basic ethical questions, although sometimes we may need to revisit them. To the extent our practice is operating on craving, which can take subtle forms like wanting to be different, which means wanting to be somebody else. Now, that's problematic on many levels, for example, in a fundamental way, we're not anybody anyway. So wanting to be somebody else is kind of a double whammy. (laughs) But since most of the time we walk around with the assumption of being somebody, that's so-called normal, to be dissatisfied with the somebody we've got to be somebody better, different, whatever, that's craving. Or some of us make the uh, mistake, I'm one of them who has at times turned Buddhist teaching into some expectation Well, it's supposed to be like this, right? You read about the Arahants, the saints, the great masters, uh, 
Milarepa turning green up in a cave and eating his nettles in the Himalayas and all those wonderful Zen stories. We don't even know if any of that's based in reality, but fun stuff. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. And I, I do believe myth has a lot of truth, so I'm partly playing around here. Not to undermine the stories, because they can be powerful when taken in a healthy way. But if they become expectations of how we're supposed to be, how we should be, how practice is supposed to be. Practice is never how it's supposed to be. It's just the way it is. And supposing it to be otherwise can be troublesome. On the other hand, these stories can kind of point us in the right direction. And in there is the key, I think, to relaxing the craving and yet having a healthy spiritual orientation rather than just wandering aimlessly. I could go on, but let me just make a mention one other way we can make practice hard. And this seems to be especially stubborn in um, segments of American Buddhism, though it shows up in Thailand and probably everywhere. Not understanding Dhamma well enough, or let's just, I shouldn't use the word enough. In core teachings of early Buddhism, practice requires guidance. And the main guidance is what's called right or skillful, wise understanding. And this is expressed in a variety of ways, such as understanding middle way, understanding dukkha, suffering, and the end or quenching of dukkha and so on. There are many other ways. To the extent our understanding is insufficient or lacks nuance and subtlety and lacks depth, practice will be hard. And I don't know of any way to get around this. I, I consider it a fact. Now, understanding, I don't mean to imply in any way one has to become a scholar, get a master's in Buddhist studies, 
or spend all one's time reading books. So let me conclude with a few comments on cultivating good, solid, subtle Dhamma understanding so that something other than habit, cultural baggage, and the like are guiding practice. The implication there is if some of the usual suspects are guiding practice, it's going to keep flip-flopping around in this easy, hard dichotomy. And the way through that is through understanding Dhamma. Now, of course, meditation practice is one of the ways we deepen our understanding of practice. But I'd like to stress that it's not the only way. And for many, I wonder if relying only on meditation is a stumbling block. So I encourage study as practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.